Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, are carrier groups, traditional fighter wings, and infantry divisions anachronistic, or will they remain timeless assets in both conventional and unconventional warfare? And our guest today is Thomas Donnelly, co-director of the Maryland Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Tom, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So you start your piece at Strategica with a quote. We don't know its precise origin. It's often attributed to Napoleon, but this was long hailed as as received wisdom. God is on the side of the big battalions, to which you add, in this age of supposedly post-industrial warfare, he has apparently changed his mind. <laughs> let's, uh, let's take that in two pieces. First, the quotation itself, God is on the side of the big battalions. When we look back at military history prior, let's say, to the technological innovations of the 20th century, how well does that maxim hold up? Were the size of your forces a better leading indicator of victory than other factors? Um, yes, to put it mildly. I mean, you have to find um, examples where, say, the techno- technological disparity or the sociological differences, the underlying cultural differences, uh, are so anomalous uh, that a small number of forces on one side bests uh, a large number of forces on another side. But I, so, I mean, there's enough military history to prove almost anything you want uh, <laughs> if you're, you know, if you choose your case studies well. Um, but particularly when it comes to adversaries uh, of even competitive quality. And that doesn't necessarily need to be measured in sort of direct terms. But, and finally, I would say for wars of geopolitical importance in their times, uh, it's better to be big than small. So I don't, you know, it is it is not... Uh, an ironclad rule uh, of scripture, but uh, um, you know we've seen God's voting patterns, and they hold up pretty well over time. Now let's talk about the God has changed His mind part. You write at Strategica. This is a quote: Since the inception of the all volunteer force after Vietnam, the purpose of American military professionals has been to remake themselves from Joe Frazier style brawlers into Muhammad Ali style boxers. So that's that probably needs a little elucidation for our non boxing fan listeners. Explain what's go explain what's going on there. Well, um uh the the Soviet army, uh, you know, sort of following uh the dictum uh uh quantity has equality on all its own. Uh, had taken the uh, big battalion uh, philosophy almost to the nth degree. And certainly in the context of the late Cold War standoff um, on the Central Front, their approach was to try to mass uh, overwhelming power and to apply it relentlessly and rapidly uh, to the point where 
it would be an irresistible force. It would be um, impossible for the NATO allies to resist this this onslaught. I mean, it would be uh, it would not it's more subtle than uh, you know the Mongol hordes riding across the plain, but they believed very strongly in dealing as firm, as hard, and as sustained a blow uh, as possible in order to rupture the alliance defenses as a matter of military organization, but also the Soviets felt that was an important way to shatter the political cohesion of NATO, that a breakthrough of the sort of frontline area would lead very rapidly to the political collapse of, of NATO. And in response, uh, um, the United States and uh, most of the leading NATO countries, Germany, Great Britain, uh, France, etc., although France was not formally a NATO member at that time, uh, tried to substitute quality for quantity or so upgrade the quality of their armored forces and the tactical competence of their units that they could resist this this tidal wave of of Soviet attacks, thinking that uh, the Soviets couldn't keep it up internally, and if they could hold uh, the front line for say ten days, f- first of all they could get reinforcements from the United States, but that the political cohesion of the Warsaw Pact would begin to to fracture. So you would have, again, to go to the boxing analogy, a slugger on one side just sort of clenching his fists and ducking his head and, uh, you know, swinging away, whilst on the other side, um, the NATO forces would jab and jab and box and reposition and move uh, in a way that would not knock out the the brawling Soviets, but would slow them down, tire them out, um, and and prevent them from achieving that irresistible momentum that would lead to a breakout or a breakthrough or a decisive operation. So, Tom, we forget about it now sometimes because his tenure came to be so identified with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. But when when Donald Rumsfeld took office as Secretary of Defense for George W. Bush, the focus of his tenure was supposed to be the transformation of the American military, embracing this concept of the the revolution in military affairs. And uh, as you note in your piece, you you write, the problems with this approach became almost immediately apparent in Iraq – where the small footprint of U.S. forces combined with the administration's antipathy toward nation-building opened the door to multiple insurgencies and by 2006, a sectarian civil war. So the question that stems from that, is that is that an indictment of the sort of light footprint approach across the board or was it that the Bush administration was just applying the, the wrong approach to that particular war? I would even take it a, a step farther. I mean, the the fact, right, first of all, we should remember that the, the military engagement with Iraq did not begin in 2003. So to begin with, much of the strength of Saddam's army 
had been sapped in the 1991 Gulf War and never rebuilt. I mean, Saddam uh, avoided many aspects of the post-war sanctions, um, but he certainly still had plenty of troops to sort of keep his own folks down. Um, But he never rebuilt the uh, kind of army that was a threat to uh, regional stability. So um, even, but allowing for that, you'd have to say that the 2003 invasion was a masterpiece of maneuver and speed. I mean, simply to march to Baghdad in three weeks, uh, let alone uh, being able to conduct raids inside Baghdad and take down the regime, loosen Saddam's hold on the country in a mere three weeks is, is, you know, that's about as good as it gets. That, of course, did not end the war. It ended the battle with, uh, or at least the initial battle with Saddam. It destroyed the regime's hold on uh, Iraq. Um, and where we got into trouble, so I would say the biggest problem was that we defined the war too narrowly and did not prepare ourselves for what would happen after that. It's not as though we really had a deep insight into um, the world of Iraq, except through the lens of Saddam Hussein, but uh, neither were we sort of prudently cautious. And really, um, instead of suppressing chaos and a nascent insurgency and then several nascent insurgencies, we really just retreated back and watched the Iraqis go at one another. Now... And and we just did not. That's a mission. That's you know more like throwing a to change from a boxing uh, analogy to a firefighting analogy. Uh, we we did not throw a wet blanket over uh, the smoldering competition for power in Iraq. Or maybe it's better to use an analogy from old style westerns. You know, having shot our way into the bar, uh, instead of keeping our guns trained on both the James gang and the Clanton gang, uh, we decided to retire uh, you know, to the bar ourselves and have a drink and congratulate ourselves on being so, so slick and swift. Now, uh, understandably, some of the enthusiasm for a – Lighter, more nimble forces has abated since that time. You you note in your piece, uh, quoting you again, the service is now formally returned to a more traditional brigade design. In other words, the present army will be much smaller in total, but its pieces will be larger than they have been for the past two decades. Tom, help us understand the interaction between those two variables. That that is to say, if if you were forced to choose. Which is the less unpalatable situation? A bigger all, overall force in smaller pieces. Or the reverse, the smaller force and bigger pieces. Well, I, I I think pieces. What we found out over the past ten years that um, the 
the pieces that we had broken ourselves into were too small to sustain themselves on the battlefield. And then particularly the kind of irregular warfare that we were engaged in, wherein um, um, units are more autonomous and that they really need a wide variety of capabilities to be able to carry out their missions. And that you can't be shifting. I mean, again, if it, it's as though a police department only had uh, you know, two cars to cover th three precincts. Um, um, if there's not enough, you know, whatever precinct doesn't have the car, um, it doesn't have the complete capacity to patrol its precincts. So, you, of course, you do want cops on the beat who are walking the beat, et cetera, et cetera. But if they don't have a full... Um, backup of capabilities to respond to crime, uh, then they're not going to be able to do their their jobs competently. And so what we would do is we would deploy these small units to Iraq and then immediately put back under the guise of enablers, uh, that was the term of art, um, the mostly sustainment and logistical capacities that had been taken away in the original uh, unit redesign. So we almost immediately put back what we'd taken away, but uh, alas, it was too late at that point because the manpower savings had been harvested. The Army as a whole has had adjusted to producing smaller units. And so the the pool of enabling units and capabilities was very much smaller. So you would find in Iraq in particular, uh, in many ways, the guys who were deployed the most and worked the hardest were people like logistics or combat engineers and so on and so forth. These sort of combat support and combat service support units um, that had originally been organically designed into the brigade or the division structure and had been deemed super superfluous uh, because information was going to make the battlefield uh, entirely transparent. And instead of staying in one place for a long time, we were going to be maneuvering agilely around the battlefield uh, using our speed and our mobility to um, break the uh, break the will of the enemy. Were were we unique amongst major military powers in in being seduced by this idea of more technology, lighter forces, or have other countries been trying to go in this direction as well? Uh, well, um, everybody's seduced by technology. It is interesting to note in their current buildup, uh, the Chinese, for example. Um, are are just upgrading. So they'll take a relatively simple warship, for example, and replace it with a more advanced warship. They don't, but the size of their fleet remains relatively constant. Um, we see our Western European allies, in particular, uh, following very much the same road that we followed. Uh, it also makes a convenient excuse 
for uh, their uh, budget cutting woes or exercises. I mean, in fact, that's also the case in this country. So much of the transformation enthusiasm uh, stems from the desire to get the same capacity at a cheaper price and with fewer people. We, we see this even and to postpone the the paying of a modernization bill when it comes due. So, I mean, what's been kind of the sad habit since the end of the Cold War and remains so even today is by the time we develop say a new fighter airplane, take the F-22, for example. So we pay the $30 billion or so it takes to invent and build the first F-22. And then instead of spending another $30 billion to buy 750 uh, F-22s, we spend, uh, you know, whatever it took to buy the 185 F-22s to that we now have much less money. So we pay all the development and science costs of fielding a new weapon. And then that's when we get uh, budget anxieties uh, and fail to field these things in, um, at, you know, at economic production rates. Right. It's the worst. It's the worst kind of, you know, penny wise and pound foolish. Because then we have to go back and invent something new to replace. You know, it accelerates the the cycle of um, research and development. All right, we'll have to leave it there. My guest has been Thomas Donnelly, co-director of the Maryland Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his essay and those by other members of the group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Tom, thank you for being with us. Pleasure. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson.